All right, there we are. Thank you, Ryan. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. This is not in your notes. I just want to put this out there to Ephesians 2. As you're opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, um, I want to make a quick just kind of update or announcement. First week of December, we had Jim Stern here. He's one of our oversight guys, and I remember specifically that he got up and he said, I, I feel like I have a word for restoration, is that you're stuck in the fog, and the Lord wants to bring you up higher. And he began to talk to our leadership team about things that he uh, perceived and saw as, as kind of why we were stuck in the fog, and how we needed to reposition some things in order to come higher. Now, I believe there's more to the word than that, but it really resonated with our leadership team because we had been talking about um, just some of the challenges that face us as far as how we're organized, and then on our elder team, just kind of the way that we are specifically gifted and skilled, and various weaknesses and, and things like that, and just going, we have a desire to see a greater expression of shared leadership. We have a great desire to see the gifts of the Spirit being used in our congregation more. Right, guys? We've been time on this. We, we want to see this happen. We believe this is Spirit-led. The Lord's saying, I want to do this. And um, so we have started to put into some, some practice or into place some uh, reorganization for 2023. And I would ask that you'd be praying with us. Maybe you've heard that we are kind of doing something like this, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about what it is. But this is what we're after. We're just saying, Lord, we believe that you want to do some reorganizing of various structures within um, how we're doing leadership to see other ministries grow and be supported and to see us come into a fuller expression of the gifts of the Spirit. And so we are currently working on that. And there is a group of folks that started meeting just kind of spontaneously. There's a group of folks that meet up at 10 a.m. here, Sunday mornings, and they're praying right now for, Lord, would you do what you want to do in 23 at Restoration? And if you've got a burden for just saying, I just have a, a feeling, a sense that the Lord is wanting to strengthen Restoration Fellowship, wanting to move Restoration uh, forward in 2023, I encourage you to join that prayer meeting. Um, they, just, they just started showing up, and so I want to breathe on that and say, I think that's of the Lord, and I'd like for you guys to join us in prayer. If you have any questions about specifics of that, you can talk to any one of our uh, elder team. We'd love to chat with you. All right. You guys ready? Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 and thir through 13, and then verse 19. Because <clears throat> I want to paint a picture for you. And I want to try to connect you in a greater way to this, what we're talking about. So Ephesians chapter 2, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made, with, made in the flesh by hands. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the picture is, before Jesus and his death and resurrection, the only ones who are going to inherit 
all of these promises we're talking about, we've been on this millenn- you know, we've been talking about the kingdom coming. The only ones that were going to inherit the kingdom were the children of Israel. And you, if you're not ethnically Jewish, you had no, none of that hope applied to you. Grab a hold of that for a minute. All these great promises we're reading about ruling and reigning with Christ and, 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 and that sort of thing, he says, you had none of it. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Skip down to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's what I want to do here. We read about some of these future covenantal promises that God made, and we read them as if they're kind of a, you know, a Lord of the Rings fairy tale saga. It's like, but we don't picture ourselves in it. It's cool to think about, but we don't actually see ourselves in the narrative. It's like we're hearing about somebody else's world. So Ephesians 2, I just want to bring before you and say, you're not a stranger from these covenants. You're not going to be a part watching other people do it. Ruling and reigning with Christ in the age to come. We're talking about these covenants God made, these promises he made to Israel. You through Christ, have been brought into it. And so, no hope to fullness of hope. When we're reading about these things, it's you are saying, this is something that through God, through his mercy upon me, and through his work on the cross, I get to now participate in. And so, I just want to encourage you, we're not reading about something here that's a kind of a neat idea or you know, it just kind of brings glory to the Lord. It does, and it is a neat idea, but this is your story. This is just as much your story as it is tomorrow, going, whatever tomorrow holds for you where you can picture yourself, okay, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. Just as much as that is real to you, because you know it's going you know, you know to happen unless, God forbid, the Lord takes you in the night. You're going to experience the stuff we're reading about. It's not a, it, it is real hope. It's real truth. And God spoke it, and his promises will come to pass. All right, so here we go. In this review here, we've talked about the crisis of hope that a lot of people don't even believe in the hope of the age to come, in the return of Jesus. They don't apply it. They don't think about it. And so we've spent time kind of establishing what the promise is. We talked about various arguments against it, preaching the kingdom. Last, two weeks ago, we talked about the examining of the millennial kingdom. And we just kind of, I laid out, I I said, guys, I'm going to present a kind of a buffet of all kinds of stuff and let you kind of go deep in this because I'm just going to turn on the fire hose and you're going to have to. Um, take this home and, and examine it on your own. Today I want to talk about the actual mission of the kingdom. So when we talk about seeing ourselves there, why are we there and what are we doing? And many people view kind of the age to come 
as an eternal worship service in the sky. You know, like my destiny when I die is to be in heaven, kind of floating, singing to Jesus forever. That is not the biblical promise. All right, but we picture it a lot. And so I want to talk about what actually does the Bible say about kind of the, not just the realities of the age to come, but what we'll actually be doing and why, okay, to connect you to it. Let's look at this quote here that I, I, I pulled off of, uh, believe it or not, this quote here was written um, by a person who presented to Congress um, as a, gosh, what do you call it, like a, uh, what's the, um, the green movement, <laughs> help me out, you know what I mean, like, we want to see a greater, you know, stewardship of our resources and that sort of thing, and it was very, you know, um, ecology, what's, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, science people. Ecologist, environmentalist, thank you, environmentalist type presentation. Science people. All right, and he's a, he's a believer, and he said this to Congress. Now, what's interesting about his comment was, he goes, if, I, if I'm right about what I believe, Christians, the, the Christian truth is that we're going to be on the earth forever, and we're going to renew the earth with Jesus. And he goes, it's what seems abundantly clear is that our eschatological perspective has profound implications on how we live and act now. And what he was saying is, he goes, this is why I'm an environmentalist. And it was just odd. It struck me. Because I thought, gosh, most Christians that I know have, a, have a, almost a separate or an escapist idea, like all this doesn't matter because we're going somewhere else. That, like, it, there's no continuity. Everything's going to burn. How many guys have heard that? Everything's going to burn. And you're like, so, so, and it's this mindset that says, ah, it really, because of my eschatological view, I don't have a lot of buy-in to this age. There's not a lot of connection to the next for me. Most believers are there. There's not a lot of connection between what they're doing now and what they're going to be doing in the age to come. It's a different reality. And this guy was saying, I believe this is true. What we believe about our eschatology or what's going to happen to us and to the earth and um, what our life's going to look like has profound implications on how we live now, what we do with resources and time. And so I want to, uh, another just example, two books I want to recommend to you. One, if you want to write this down in your notes, All Things New by John Eldridge. Short book. How many of you guys like John Eldridge? Yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting writer. He keeps it, he just, he's able to engage. A lot of his books are short, um, but it's real deep, good stuff. And then another one, if you want to go a thousand page scholarly, a book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. 
I've read both of these books, and both of them have a similar story. John Eldridge and N.T. Wright are reading about the promises of the age to come and reading about the resurrection of the saints, and they're going, I am, I am, my entire eschatological future view of myself is shifting. And I am surprised at what I'm finding here. And it's starting to shape how I operate and live and view my role and treat my resources even now because there's so much carry through. And these guys are just like, it's been life-changing. And so I want to encourage you, if you want to go deeper in these things, there's a couple of great books. All Things New by John Eldridge and Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. So what we find is that the work of when Jesus returns and us ruling and reigning with him on the earth is a missional work. So this is Revelation chapter, or I'm sorry, Revelation, Roman numeral, number two, letter A, a missional work. As we looked at in the previous session, there's a large-scale continuance of the work on the earth as we partner with our king in establishing righteousness worldwide. This is directly following the return of Jesus to the earth. It becomes clear as we consider all the arenas of the work of the millennium, it is incredibly missional. It has a purpose. It has a mission. It has a, has a you know, um, mission statement and a vision statement. A quick examination. Say about these realities and events that will happen at the end of the age are extremely helpful in determining what is that mission. What are we talking about? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at 23 through 28. We're kind of jumping into the midst of a conversation that he's having about the resurrection and what's happening in the resurrection and why, what it's for and and what we believe about it. So we're picking it up kind of right in the midst of that conversation about the resurrection. He Previously, he's talking about what kind of physical body we're going to have and all that stuff. Verse 23, he says, Christ is the first fruits of this resurrection body. And afterwards, those who are Christ win, gang. What's it say? At his coming. So when he returns, you'll get a resurrected body. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Now look at this next part. What's next? What happens next? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And that last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, if you, if you read the book of Revelation, if you read some other passage about this, it agrees with this, which is great that the Bible agrees with itself, right? We can find this common theme over and over, that his coming will get a physical body to rule and reign with him because his purpose at his coming is to deliver the kingdom to God the Father, all right? He's going to do this when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, and he's talking about power of Satan and darkness, unrighteousness, for he must reign until he has put all enemies of God, is the idea, under his feet. That's 
takes a thousand years. Does that make sense? We've been talking about this millennial thing. What's the millennium about? What is it unto? Well, there was a promise given. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And the promise was given that they would return through the seed of Eve. And that Satan would be defeated, ultimately defeated. And that there would be a restoration of all that was lost. That they would once again dwell in Eden with God forever. Now we talked about this last time. That Jesus returns. And he through process and through ruling and reigning with you. He establishes worldwide righteousness. And defeats every enemy of God. Both spiritually and physically. He destroys the curse, and the earth then is ready to receive the dwelling place of Almighty God back on the earth. Why does this have to happen? Because if every enemy of God is not vanquished, then when God comes, he destroys it. Sin can't dwell with God, right? And this was the problem. Even Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. So there has to be a, a changing, right, a, a restoration, an elimination of sin and death so that we can return to the garden. This is missional. Okay, so primary restoration. Think about that word, rest, restoration. We kind of like that word here. The Bible uses this term to talk about the work of Jesus, that it's restorative. That he's going to restore. He's going to um, bring about that which was lost. The reuniting of heaven and earth is the main culminating event that happens at the end of the thousand years. If you're familiar with Revelation chapter 20, there's other passages about it. I'm sorry, 21. This event is the ultimate fulfillment of the original promise given to Adam and Eve. This is it. This is what I've just been talking about. This event does not happen in a vacuum. This event doesn't just kind of pop out of nowhere. Here we are. But rather, it is the goal and mission of the initial rulership of our king. Every promise given about this seed, about the anointed one, about the Christ, about the son of David who's going to rule, who is the seed promised, that his work will be restorative. That he's going to bring about righteousness. And that he's going to bring about godliness worldwide. And he's going to have godly dominion over the earth. That is Genesis. Right? He's going to restore it. And then what's interesting is 1 Corinthians 15 says, At the end of that, when he's placed every enemy of God under his feet, then he's going to deliver that earthly kingdom that he has established in righteousness to the Father. And then what does it say in Revelation chapter 21? And behold, I saw the city of God coming and descending upon the earth again. And the gates were open. And there will no longer be sin and death that comes through those gates ever again. And we'll go freely in and out of those gates. That's Revelation 21. Now, we'll spend a little bit more time on that next week. 
But I just want to talk about it's preparatory restoration. That is the mission. That's the first, that's the works that will be ruling and reigning with Jesus to do when he returns. Let's look at Malachi 3, 2 through 6. Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's or a launderer's soap. Jesus returns. Who can stand the day that he returns? And when he comes, he'll be like a refining fire, a purifying fire, okay? Making all things pure and a washing soap, making these things clean. The idea? And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, a priestly line, and purge them as gold and silver, that they might offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, restoring, as in the former years. And I will come near to you in judgment. And I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against false swearers, against those who oppress the hireling and his wages. Whoa! About those who don't give the right money to the people who work for them. I'm going to come and straighten this out. Because it's a righteousness issue. The widow and the fatherless and turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, let's go ahead and look at Acts. I like this question. Jesus is resurrected. He spends 40 days talking to about the kingdom. We've, we've looked at this passage many times. The question that's posed is so interesting. Look at Acts 1.6. Peter says this. Oh, it's not, it's they. They all. I don't know why I thought it was Peter. Everybody he's talking to there. The 120, let's call them. He says, Lord, at this time, will you what? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? So whatever Jesus was talking to him about for 40 days had a bunch to do with restoring all right? That which was lost. And they're connecting to us. Is it right now you're resurrected? You stand in front of us? Are you kind of prepping us? Is it now that you're going to bring about this restoration? Look at Acts 3, 20, 19 through 21. They heal a guy. It causes this great crowd to gather. Now it's Peter. Peter gives an altar call message, if you want to call it that. And then look what he says. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins would be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send Jesus Christ, the idea is back, because at that time he had ascended to heaven. He goes, we're, get saved and contend with us in prayer that he would send Jesus back to the earth. It's eschatology immediately after the altar call. 
Isn't that interesting? Like eschatology is like a, you know, a third or fourth semester class to the new believer. For these guys, the first message to the new believer, you just got saved, great. Guess what? Now you can enter in to the promise of God of restoration and live with him forever. Ask that he would come back. So that times of refreshing would come. That he would send Jesus Christ who was preached to you, whom heaven must receive until... So he's going to be received in heaven until a moment called the times of the restoration of all things. Which God has spoken of by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. What did we just read? Malachi spoke of it. Isaiah speaks of it. The Psalms speak of it. Moses spoke of it. Adam and Eve said, pray with us that he would send the seed. This is all the prophets have spoke about this. The times of restoration are coming. Jesus is the one who's going to do it. Pray with us that he would send him. Let's go ahead and turn the page. It's a restorative work. It's evangelistic. You ever wonder, a thousand years? Seems like a long time. We talked about this in life group. Like, I can't picture 50 years, let alone a thousand. Clear purpose of a unique thousand-year time period is that Jesus still desires that none should perish. Now, this is an interesting idea. That we know that Peter tells us that the, one of the reasons why he's still remaining in heaven and he hasn't come back yet is because he's waiting for as many to turn to him as possible in his mercy. So he's watching the growing of darkness and he's watching the church maturing and there's a culmination of time here where darkness he will no longer be able to have patience with the growing darkness. And he will come and with a rod of iron judge wickedness. But in order to do that, he has to destroy the wicked. And he's going, I am waiting for the church to be my witness unto the fullness so that as many will turn to me as possible before I come and bring that rod of iron. Because he's merciful, he says. Now, in the same way, we know, and we've studied this in past sessions, that there's going to be still unsaved people on the earth when Jesus comes. They didn't take the mark. They, they are not part of the church. They're not at that end time battle over Jerusalem when he comes and he destroys those armies. They're living, I always think, <laughs> I'm sorry, I heard it, I just can't stop thinking about it. I heard a, a preacher say it one time, it's the... It's those guys that are in those underground bunkers with all their food, just kind of waiting out the end times. They didn't pick a side. They're just, in, you know, waiting. <laughs> and there will be, it says there's people like that. We know that Israel, many Jews, won't believe until they actually see Jesus return. Right? So we know that they don't have resurrected bodies. they they're still in their human body. Now they've turned to the Lord, which is great. And, and so there's a, and we'll get, that's 
a bunny trail that we can talk over coffee about, of you know, how they, that sort of thing, that they're going to still die. There's a second death talked about in the book of Revelation. There's a first resurrection, second resurrection, all that stuff. That's side note over coffee. The point is that there is a whole bunch of people who still need to turn to the Lord, who still need to be discipled, who still need to be taught and shepherded, okay? And even though Jesus is ruling on the earth, there will be nations who will not turn. And this is a bizarre idea, but it's incredibly biblical. It, I, we, we've covered passages on this in the past. And so we know, though Jesus, a picture the, the, the idea here, part of the mission of Jesus, he's got a thousand years, and he knows that heaven is coming down, and he's going to put every enemy of God under his feet. And he comes to the earth, and there's still a bunch of enemies of God on the planet. And he doesn't just go stomp them out. He extends his mercy, and he extends his mercy, and he extends his mercy, and teaches the nations, and brings the nations into righteousness, and shows them how to do, you know, the, five, the seven mountains of government, and, and education, brings them up in righteousness, so that they would turn to him. Jeremiah 3, 14 through 17, let's look at this idea here. It says, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. For I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion, which is in Jerusalem. And I will give you shepherds, according to my heart, who will feed you with understanding and with knowledge. Now, if I could just say <clears throat> that this is an end-time passage in its context, and if you want to read the rest of Jeremiah 3, you'll see that. And so he goes, return, I'm gonna, there's a moment coming where I'm going to take you a few of you at a time, and you're going to come, because I'm going to win you, and you're going to come to Jerusalem. And when you come, I'm going to give you, what's the word? Pastors. Who are going to teach you, and help. notice it's not him. Isn't that interesting? Because I'm going to give you people that I'm ruling and reigning with. And they're going to take you to Bible study. And they're going to talk to you about the truth of God. And you're going to be delivered from lies and from all sorts of things. And you're going to come into the knowledge of the truth. And I'm going to shepherd you with them. Then it shall come to pass, when you're multiplied and increased in the land in those days that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it or visit it. It shall not be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem be called the throne where God dwells. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, and no more will they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. But how does this happen? He wins them one and two at a time, and they come for a thousand years. And at the end of it, he can, he can stand and say, all the nations have come. And that, that, maybe you've never read it that way, but that's what it's saying. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days. And if you want to, again, the context is when this promise comes about of the seed coming to the earth to rule and reign. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's heart house will be established on the top of the mountains and will be exalted above all the hills and all the nations will flow to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and will walk in his path. For out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations. He'll rebuke people. Say, that is not right. You can't do that anymore. I'm the king of the earth. And I'm going to enforce my rule of righteousness. And they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. And neither will they learn war anymore. Why will this happen? Because there's a process where he teaches them righteousness to the point where they say, we don't need to think about war anymore or people attacking us. This nation's not coming for us in a spy balloon. Aha, okay. I had to throw that in there because I know everybody's kind of thinking about it. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of this reality of Jesus' return. And it says that he's going to return to the earth. There's going to be an initial battle over the city of Jerusalem. And then there's going to be an event called the binding of Satan. That say, it says Satan will be thrown into prison for a thousand years so that he's no longer able to deceive the nations. Why is that important? It's because there's a whole bunch of people in the nations who could still be deceived if Satan had free reign. And so he says, nope, I've come to establish righteousness and I'm going to lock him away for a thousand years so that he can't deceive the teaching that I'm bringing any longer. So it's going to be evangelistic. Amen? There's work to be done. And you'll have a gift to offer in that work, just like you do now. Establishing intimacy. There'll be a whole new dynamic of partnership and intimacy that we'll have to learn to walk in. This is interesting. It's that Jesus, upon his return, we all end up in Jerusalem with him for a great feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which is great. And it kicks off a rule and reign with Jesus as his bride. And we begin to rule the earth with him. And what it says is that he actually works with us and teaches us how to lead well. Thank God for that. Right? That it'll be like, I want to talk about how you guys are doing education. And all the educators are going, I've been waiting for this moment. If only we could teach kids God's way. What way would that be? Well, he's going he's gonna to bring it about. He's going to educate the educators of how to do education. He's going to bring about, and some of you guys are going, I, I just feel like there's this burden on my life to help people walk in the fullness of their health. You know, it says that he's going to bring healing to the nation through leaves from trees. 
Now, you can do what you want with that, but there's other passages that talk about how he's going to cause them to live right and eat right in the age to come. But gang, he's doing it through and with you. He's educating you about health so that you can bring that to the nations. He is in a physical body ruling from Jerusalem, and he rules with and through his church around the world. Someone's going to have an assignment in Pagosa Springs in the age to come. I know Al DeBoer has already said it's mine. I'm going to join him. I'd like to have some role to play here in the age to come. Again, when we begin to think about this, it kind of just shifts things, doesn't it? So he's going to teach us and care for us and help us as we teach and care for the nations. That's how we're ruling and reigning together. Let's look at Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, we kind of just read this, right, in Isaiah. But now this is the prophet Micah, and he's adding a little bit to it. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills. The peoples will flow to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so he could teach us his ways. For out of Zion the law will go forth, and the word of the Lord to Jerusalem. Okay, we we know this this passage. Let's skip down to verse 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all people... Walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, this is a real interesting idea. He's going, when that day comes, everyone's going to have their own tree or their own vineyard to care for. And they're going to sit under that, under that assignment with confidence. Okay? Why? No one's going to make them afraid. They're going to know what to do. They're not going to question it. How many of you guys question? I just, man, I wish I knew if the Lord wants me to go right or left here. I wish I knew. Just don't worry. When he comes and he's reigning from Jerusalem and he's teaching the nations, everyone is going to sit under their own assignment and the Lord's going to direct them so that they don't question what they're doing. They know what they're doing with confidence. And we will walk just like people walk in the name of their God, thinking they're knowing what they're doing. We're going to walk with confidence in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. John 17, 24, all of us love this passage. Jesus goes, here's what I want, Father. He's going to his death on the cross and he's saying, this is what the great desire of my heart is. Father, that they would be with me where I am. Now, if we bring that into the age when he returns, we're talking about this deep, intimate fellowship that's going to exist where we feel like we are with him where he is, ruling and reigning in partnership and in fullness. Now, he's provided a way. He's hanging on the cross. Can you picture it, gang? Yes, He's, he's looking at your, your, your trapped in sin. He's going to set you free. But he's got his eyes set on a reality where you are with him in full partnership. 
And he's making a way for you to do this. Father, I desire they be with me where I am. Still contending then. So this message is called contending for the kingdom. We want Jesus to return. Contending for the kingdom and hope. Jesus returns and he goes, guys, we're still contending. Underneath my leadership, we're contending for the fullness of righteousness on the earth. And we want the promise that heaven and earth would come together again. That the Father, we would dwell with God in his city forever and ever. Would you partner with me for a thousand years? We say, yes. We love that idea. He goes, all right, here's a physical resurrected body and my Holy Spirit. Let's do this. So, there's very much a biblical reality, still contending for the kingdom, even after Jesus returns to the earth and sets up his kingdom initially, because it's preparatory, it's evangelistic, it's restorative. It establishes a rule and reign in perfect unity that he builds us and teaches us to walk in and that we sustain forever and ever. The initial rule and reign of Jesus is geared to establish or bring about the total fulfillment of the promises of the restoration of all things, culminating in the complete reunification of heaven and earth as a permanent reality. Permanent reality. How many guys, like, I know a few of you, because we've talked about eschatology before, you're like, wait, and if there's, there's unbelievers on the earth, Jesus returns, and, and, and if we always kind of have a choice in love, what if we repeat this same scenario over again? What if we say no to God in the age to come, and it all falls apart, and he does it again? The Bible says over and over that that part of what's going to happen during that thousand-year reign is such a unification, such a growth in God and such a oneness that when heaven and earth comes, he's done such a glorious job of bringing about the fullness of righteousness in us that that reality stays forever. Plus, he destroys Satan, so that's great as well. So we don't have an adversary any longer. New heavens and new earth, the culmination of the work and Daniel, if you want to come up, of the promised one, in conjunction with his church and bride, is an establishment of the new heavens and new earth. I want to repeat that again. How many of you guys have heard of the new heavens and new earth? Promise of the Bible. Very clear promise of the Bible. So let's read it now in context. The culmination of the work of the promised one, in conjunction with us, in partnership with us, is the establishment of a new heavens and new earth. I believe strongly that this is the complete fulfillment of all the prophetic promises of restoration and the establishment of the kingdom of God. What I just said was, some people ask me, wait, is, are we hoping for the millennial kingdom or eternity? Are we hoping for the new heavens and new earth? or What, what is it? Which one? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. That your hope is a righteous ruler on the earth that you're in partnership with forever. Through his righteousness and his rule, the earth will be restored and you will just go into eternity in that reality. So it's not like 
It's not like, um, it, it's a preparatory work. In other words, you're building unto the fullness of a new heavens and new earth. It's not a, now we have a new heavens and new earth. It's a process. And you're making all things new with him. Now you're going to say, wait a minute. Isn't that one passage that says he just burns everything and we start over? We'll talk about that next week. With, with clarity, because I know that's a real, like people are going, wait a minute. And I want to address that next week. And I'm going to address it with a lot of, you know, with, with a lot of clarity. Genesis 12, 1 through 4, God makes a promise to Abraham. Right? We know this promise. Through you, Abraham, all the earth is going to be blessed. Through your seed. Now, Hebrews tells us that the way that Abraham understood that promise was to go and dwell in the land where he, where he was called to in a tent waiting for the city of God. Right? We, we've been over this. So Abraham's going, okay, that promise that he gave me says that we're going to see heaven and earth fully restored again. The thing that was lost. And so that fullness of promise that we're going for is that reality. Our biblical hope is clearly a return to the garden in which we were cast out in order to walk out the destiny we were originally called for. I want to give you a few passages, then we're going to pray. Isaiah 51. For the Lord will come and comfort Zion. 51, verse 3 through 5. He will make her wilderness like Eden. Pause. What? He's going to come, he's going to see all the waste places of the earth, and he's going to do such a restorative work, it will be like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord, Eden. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people. Give ear, O my nation, for the law will proceed with me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, and my salvation has gone forth. And my arms will judge the people, and the coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Through that, he's going to make it like Eden again. Ezekiel. There's a day coming that I'll cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will enable you to dwell in the cities, and ruins are going to be rebuilt. Say restoration. The desolate land will be tilled instead of laying desolate in sight of all who pass by. And they're going to say, this land that was desolate is now like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted and desolate and rude cities are now fortified and inhabited because there's peace. And the nations that are left shall know that I am the Lord and I've rebuilt the ruined places and I've planted what was desolate I've spoken it, and I will do it. I'm going to make it like Eden. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and we're going to end here. How many of you guys have ever heard, Bible starts out in the garden and ends in the garden? It's true. He showed me a pure river, the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, 
in the middle of its street and on either sides of the river was what? The tree of life. Where's the tree of life? It's in Eden. Which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations. There'll be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Gang, you're not a stranger to this. This is your promise. He's brought you near. He's given you inheritance as a son to rule and reign with him as a kingdom of priests. And this is where it's going. There'll be no night there, no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Amen? Let's all stand. You see yourself in the narrative, guys. Because he does. He's planning on it. He's shaping you even now, working with you even now. Because you're in the story of the restoration of all things. Your destiny is to rule and reign with him. This is your hope. Jesus, I thank you that we're no longer strangers of the covenants of promise, of the inheritance of the saints, but you've brought us near. God, I pray that you would equip everyone in this room for an eternal perspective that causes them to live as if they believe it. It causes them to have hope that overcomes what they see now because they know and they're confident in your promises about the renewal of the earth and bringing righteousness to every aspect. God, for every single part of this that we can experience and have now as a witness of the coming kingdom, Lord, we ask for it. That everyone would have that hope. In Jesus' name. I'd like to encourage you guys, if you need prayer for anything, we want to pray for you. Let's have our uh, prayer teams come up. Chase, I know you might be one of them guys, so if you got to stay in the, you got it lined out? All right. Come on up. Elders, if you want to come up, we want to pray for people. If you have prayer needs for anything, we want to pray for you. Lord, I just pray that you would cause us to have greater understanding of the age to come, the hope in it. Open up the Bible to us in new ways. Amen. And if you have any prayer needs, we want to pray for you.